Uh, today's passage uh, from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of uh, Matthew falls into a uh, highly technical and theological category known as tricky. Uh, and that's because this passage today actually uh, includes uh, three separate and distinct episodes in the life and ministry of uh, Jesus involving very different and frankly disconnected uh, people. So this is not one of those that has uh, a parable or a story that Jesus told or a conversation with one individual or one event to get wrapped around. Uh, first, we have uh, Matthew, the tax collector, who's doing his job when Jesus walks into his life and says, follow me, uh, which then leads to dinner at Matthew's house uh, with him and many tax collectors and others that uh, Matthew refers to as sinners, uh, which then triggers a verbal exchange with the Pharisees who are very uh, religious and they see what's happening and they don't like it. And that's the first episode, which then translates to the second episode involving a leader of the synagogue in Capernaum whose daughter has died. And he rushes in and kneels before Jesus and he wants him to come to his house, you know, right away. And so as Jesus makes his way uh, toward the house, we have then this third intervening episode involving a nameless woman who has a medical issue that has gone on for 12 years, involving hemorrhaging or uh, bleeding. And she believes that if she would only touch the fringe of Jesus' garment or his cloak, that alone would be enough to heal her. And the question is, you know, well, apart from the sequence of these uh, episodes, uh, is there a theme here? Is there a unifying thread that runs uh, through all of it? And if you look at it, and uh, you study it a little bit and you think, well, the unifying thread of the theme here is the healing, life-giving, transforming power of Jesus. Well, I think you'd be right. But I also think that uh, there's a lot more going on in the story here when you peel back the layers of this tricky passage in Matthew chapter 9 and see what's really going on. And so, for example, when it comes to Matthew, uh, this is a guy who's not simply doing his job when Jesus uh, walks into his life. Uh, this guy is really not a good person uh, at all. And that's because in that time and in that place, uh, tax collectors were actually collaborators uh, with the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. Uh, who came into the country against the will of the children of Israel and uh, in the course of being there they would sell or they would auction off uh, regions or uh, large areas known as districts uh, to people who are very wealthy and also very smart and would collect the taxes from everybody in that region and present it uh, to the officials of uh, the Roman Empire. In uh, Luke chapter 19, uh, you meet a man by the name of Zacchaeus, who the kids in Sunday school like to sing about. Well, guess what? Zacchaeus was actually one of those chief tax collectors in charge of the entire region. And, and what these guys would do would then, then be to hire common tax collectors to actually collect uh, the money. And uh, we think that Matthew was one of those common tax collectors, kind of like you know maybe a customs officer uh, collecting the duty uh, that was charged on goods and uh, services in the uh, fishing town of uh, Capernaum. Now the problem was 
uh, that the chief tax collector would actually charge more than was owned to the Roman Empire, and then he would pocket uh, the difference. And the, the common tax collectors would charge even more than the chief tax collector charged, and they would pocket the difference. So the whole system was corrupt. Uh, with everybody getting their uh, cut uh, at the expense of the people who by this time doesn't, don't even know what the tax really is. And so a tax collector was a traitor to his country as well as to his faith, working for a foreign government, for his profit, and stealing from his own people in order to do it. And so that made a tax collector one of the most despised people you could ever imagine. I mean, they just hated these guys. Now here's the thing, if you were a rabbi in Galilee and you were trying to get some traction in your ministry, you know, develop a following, seems to me that a tax collector would be the absolute last person you would ever call to be a member of your ministry team. And yet here goes Matthew 9.9. Jesus was walking along and he sees a man named Matthew at the tax booth. And he says, follow me. And we kind of blow by that verse and often see it as kind of a small detail of a bigger story. But let me tell you, that one verse is just loaded with power. It is loaded actually with the gospel. And yet it also uh, reveals what a controversial, radical figure and leader uh, Jesus is, out-of-the-box thinker, who is not very concerned about his popularity, which is then confirmed in verse 10, uh, the very next verse, where we find that Jesus actually goes to dinner at the home of Matthew, where there were many tax collectors. Oh, boy. As well as, in Matthew's words, sinners. Now, the word uh, sinner in that context uh, was all kidding aside, a technical theological term that meant something a little bit different than it means to us today. Uh, when we think of a sinner as a person who does, you know, like a bad thing and a violation of one of God's laws or dis disobedience to God's will. But back then, sinners weren't just that. They were people who disregarded the laws of Moses altogether. They didn't even try. I mean, they, these were irreligious people who, who didn't care about God, who didn't care uh, about any of that stuff. And so if you were a devout child of Israel, there were certainly two things uh, that could be expected of you. One is that you hated tax collectors, and the other is that you did not hang around with sinners. And that explains why the Pharisees, who were very devout, very religious, very obedient to the laws of Moses, go to the disciples of Jesus and say to him, what in the world is your rabbi doing eating at the home of tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing there? Little did they know that this was the Son of God himself befriending the sinners and the tax collectors. Not to mention the fact that in that society, in that culture, when you ate with somebody, it wasn't just a, you know, a social courtesy. It was a signal that you considered that person to be your equal. And yet that's what Jesus does in going to Matthew's house 
and eating with him, his fellow tax collectors, and others, sinners. That's what he does with Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector down in Jericho, when he says, remember this? You know, I want to come to your house today. That's a big verse right there. That's what he does with a Samaritan woman with, you know, five husbands. That's what he does uh, for even some of the Pharisees themselves, like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea. Anyway, uh, Jesus doesn't... Uh, let the disciples hang out to dry. He enters into the conversation and he answers the question by saying, why am I eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because people who are well do not need a doctor, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, that's also uh, a verse that, uh, I don't know about you, but I kind of blow by it. Uh, but if you peel back another layer, what you find is that in those words, what Jesus is actually doing, as you may have noticed, is he's quoting the prophecy of Hosea in the Old Testament. It's very shrewd on Jesus' part because he's sticking it to these guys using their own scriptures. And at the very same time, he's saying, you know, God wants mercy. God wants compassion. God wants acceptance. God wants love and not just the sacrifices that make a show of your religion. Now comes episode two when into this conversation rushes this leader of the synagogue whose daughter has just died. And in Matthew, uh, we don't know uh, his identity, but in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, we know that the name of this man is Jairus, and that the daughter who has just died is 12 years old. And what hits me about this passage, this episode, is that though he is a very religious man, very devout, Jairus, the synagogue leader, he doesn't care that Jesus is the home having dinner with tax collectors and sinners because he believes in Jesus. He trusts Jesus. And Jesus is his hope when his life has just completely shattered and fallen apart. And so Jesus gets up and he goes, but, but there's a problem here because if Jesus goes in, into a home and makes contact with a dead body, under the laws of Moses, he is corrupted. He is defiled. He is impure and he is unclean for one week. And yet he goes. Why? Because Jairus is his friend. You know, like Matthew has made his friend, like the tax collectors like the sinners become his friends. And then on their way comes this third intervening episode where this woman comes and she touches the fringe of his coat because she wants to be healed by Jesus. But again, we got a problem because in doing that, she also violates the law of Moses because her illness had to do with blood, with bleeding. And what hits me about this episode is that instead of scolding this woman, instead of, you know, having her punished for her legal religious breach, this radical, controversial rabbi looks at her and says, you know what, daughter, your faith 
has made you well. And with that, Jesus has made yet another friend. As he then goes, even though he is now unclean, he is impure, he's corrupt, he's defiled, even before he gets to the house, but he goes to the house of Jairus. He fires the musicians who have already been hired for the funeral. And he walks in, and he takes that little girl by the hand, and she lives. And so, yeah, you know, if you're looking for a thread that runs through this tricky passage, a, a theme for it, and you said, well, it's the healing, it's the life-giving, it's the transforming power of Jesus, you'd be right. And yet it's also true that there really is a lot more to this story when you peel the back, the layers, and you see how far Jesus is willing to go in order to unleash that power, in order to affect the transformation of people like Matthew, the corrupt, greedy tax collector, and those for whom he crosses these boundaries of religion, because Jesus is the friend of sinners. And it's his desire that God's mercy would make them the friends of God, even in their shame, even in their sin and their guilt, even in their fear, their trial, their sickness, their grief. And even when they die, and he takes us by the hand and he raises us up to everlasting life. This is the Christ who comes and enters into my life and he says, you know, Mark, I don't always like what you're doing, but that doesn't mean I don't love you. I'm coming to your house. And I'm coming to this house because I want us to have dinner. At my table, where you get to hear me say that you are a friend of God by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Uh, now today I would also invite you uh, to use this passage uh, to think not just, uh, you know, just how far Jesus was willing to go, for all these unlikely characters but also to think a little bit about, you know, how far are you willing to go? And what unthinkable, unfathomable person will you befriend in order to make them a friend of God? Because sometimes it occurs to me that we set limits, or at least I set limits, that are a little more restrictive than the ones that Jesus seems to be setting in Matthew chapter 9. And uh, in case it helps you to do that, uh, I would just invite you to look at this passage and you know, turn it inside out a little bit and realize that Matthew, the tax collector, hey, that's you. That's me. The Pharisees in the passage, that's us. That's us. Uh, that like Jairus, it's good to be religious. It really is good to be religious. But our hope is in him. 
It's in his mercy and his sacrifice and not in the quality of my religious uh, performance. And like that woman who is unnamed in the intervening episode, you know, our wellness, with or without physical healing, our wellness comes when we are touched and come into contact with the love of God so that you and I, the unlikely ones, can get up and follow him into somebody else's home, into their life, their guilt, their shame, their grief, their loss, their brokenness, their trouble, and bring to them the life-giving good news of Jesus Christ and its power to change everything in the way they see this world and their purpose and in their future as well. And so I know I've shared this image with you before, uh, but I had to do it again today in the context of uh, this tricky passage from Matthew chapter 9. This is the statue of Jesus that sits beneath the iconic dome of Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And it's been there for more than a hundred years. It it goes by various names, including Christ the Comforter, Christ the Divine Healer, and and even some in Latin as well. But every day at Johns Hopkins Hospital, people walk around that statue. And uh, they sign and write prayers in books uh, that are situated around that. They, they place flowers and other things at the, at the base of it. Uh, I visit that statue uh, in that dome almost every time I go see somebody at Hopkins. And I've even taken people to the statue where I've prayed with them at the base of this, you know, just magnificent 11-foot-tall piece of artwork. But the other thing, and the reason that I'm sharing it with you again today, is that if you go there and you hang out in that rotunda, there's something else that you will see. As people walk through during the day, you will see them stop and touch the very bottom of that robe. They'll just grab it, like for a second, and then let go and keep walking. I've seen patients do this. I've seen people in wheelchairs do this. I've seen family members do it. I've seen doctors do it. I've seen staff members uh, do it. Uh, In commemoration of that unnamed woman who touches the hem, the fringe of his cloak, believing that her connection with Jesus would make all things new. And it's interesting that the word savior in Latin is the word salvator. And the word salvator is where we get the word salve. A healing ointment. Because Jesus is the healer of our soul and body. He is the physician that has come for tax collectors and sinners like you and me. And the, and the word salve also comes from salvator and, and salve. And salve uh, means hail or it means hello. But literally it means be well. And so you and I already uh, know that, uh, you know, none of us, not one of us here is going to live forever, at least in this world. 
and that uh, even in those moments when uh, we do experience healing for ourselves or somebody else in, in ways that uh, may be very big or maybe very little, it's still true that every single one of us, ultimately, long time or short, one way or another, we're going to cross the river. But I hope you also know from this tricky passage and the rest of God's precious holy word that in Jesus we have been healed from our sin sickness. In Jesus, we are made well, whether or not the body is even healed. And so that's uh, it for this tricky passage from uh, the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew for the third Sunday after Pentecost, except to say to you, be well, friends, be well. And may you know the life-giving, life-healing, life-transforming power of Jesus. And may it flow through you as you get up and go and you bring that grace to a broken world who needs to know that because he has come into our lives, because of his mercy, his sacrifice, his death and resurrection, we are made the friends of God forever. Amen.